King James didn't do too bad on that one, man. We didn't need a translation about that. Um, it wasn't in our uh, prayer request, but uh, I know that I could speak for Mike Peterson, my, my friend and brother in Rockland, let you know that uh, he was discharged from the hospital yesterday and he's at home now. Uh, he's got a long road of recovery ahead of him. So if we can just refocus our prayers, not on his COVID anymore, but on his recovery. So, but I know that he would, uh, he'd thank you from the bottom of his heart. And um, I, I guess as, as you were praying and thanking God for Leo and Emma, I just, it hit me that uh, usually in one of my prayers on a, on a baptism, I usually uh, acknowledge that everybody who witnessed uh, today, uh, Leo and Emma, step into the waters. Um, for everybody who sees somebody is being baptized, there is somebody out there who needs to make the same decision. And if God is impressing that upon your heart, I just want to give an open invitation. Uh, that's the kind of text and call I don't mind getting. So... Uh, Call me, call Grady, grab a church member. In prophecy, they said in the end time, uh, 10 Gentiles will grab a hold of one Jew's arm and say, take me to the mountain of the Lord. Grab anybody's arm uh, if you're being impressed today. And uh, we'll make sure that um, one day soon, uh, we'll, we can step up there too. So, From Numbers 21, beginning in verse five, the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, no water. We detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent poisonous serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, we have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord to take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a poisonous serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten shall look at it and live. So Moses made a serpent of bronze, put it on a pole, and whenever a serpent bit someone, the person would look at the serpent of bronze and live. It was an absurd notion. It's completely absurd. You shouldn't be able to get over a poisonous snake bite by looking at another snake. It's absolutely absurd. And also, this is not how a God should act. This is not what a God should demand. The gods of Egypt would never make such a deal with puny humans who worship them. You think Ra, the god of the sun, you think God of the Nile would uh, pay back forgiveness? for speaking and whining, complaining against such a God? No. Gods use the power they have to terrorize, to pound, to beat humans into submission. Not offer salvation from death just by asking and believing. It was an absurd notion. Then in numbers it was absurd. One might actually call it foolish. A foolish thing to ask, and one might also call it a stumbling block. Because we do know there were many, many who refused. Even though they were bitten, they refused to look. Because that's how absurd that it was. Patriarchs and prophets actually say that there were parents who actually wouldn't let their kids look. 
It was so absurd that I'm not going to let my kid even look. And they would hold their face away to keep from looking at the serpent. Completely, absolutely foolishness and a stumbling block to just look and be saved. As we begin this new series on the cross, can I just remind you a little bit of what John taught us about the cross? By the time that what we know that Jesus is actually uh, placed upon the cross, forced to, uh, to die of crucifixion, is that number one, the religious leaders convinced Pilate that they actually, uh, they convicted Jesus of being a false prophet. They already held their trial and their uh, um, Israeli or their Jewish pronunciation upon him was that he was guilty of being a false prophet. They needed to convince Pilate, though, that even though he was Israel's false prophet, that he was a threat to Rome. And they need to convince Pilate that he deserved crucifixion. Because there's one thing that they wanted that the law would not give them. One thing that they wanted of this uh, particular false prophet. Because we're told, and Jesus even predicted it, he said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus predicted back in chapter three this day, this day that Pilate would actually hang him on this cross. He actually predicted it years before, years before in the prophet Isaiah when he says, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he'll see his offspring, he'll prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Rent. Same word that you would get when somebody blasphemed and uh, a, a priest would stand up and they would rend their garments. If you blasphemed in front of a priest, they were commanded by the law to rend their garments, to tear them. It's the same word used here. Jesus literally was torn open on the cross. He was ripped to shreds. Ripped, torn. The cross is a horror an absolute horror. that I'm not sure we were ever even meant to picture how horrible it actually was. Cicero, the ancient Roman statesman, said this about the cross. The idea of the cross should never come near the bodies of Roman citizens. It should never pass through their thoughts, their eyes, or their ears. It was such a horror that it should never even, a Roman citizen should never even think about it. It was such a horror, if you will. So why the cross for our Messiah? Why the cross for our Lord and Savior? Why the cross for the King of Kings? It was needed to complete a plan. See, there was a plan put in place that day because the law did not give them what they wanted. They believe he's a false prophet and he's convicted of being a false prophet, but here's all the law will allow them to do if he's a false prophet. One who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall be put to death. The whole congregation shall what? Stone the blasphemer. Aliens as well as citizens, when they blaspheme the name, she, he shall be put to death. It only allowed them to stone. They didn't want to stone this particular false prophet. 
What they needed, what they wanted, was for Rome to crucify him because crucifixion would give them what they really wanted because the law says this about anybody put to death. If you take the corpse of anybody put to death and you hang it from a tree, you'll bury him that same day for anyone hung on a tree is under God's what? Is under God's curse. You must not defile the land that the Lord your God is giving you for possession. The curse, that's what they wanted. They wanted the curse. See, because later, when people uh, like us would be walking around claiming to believe in the risen Savior, claiming to believe that he is the Holy One of God, that he is the anointed one of God, that he is Mashiach, that he is Messiah, when we start to proclaim that message, they would use common sense and say, hold on a second, how did your Messiah die? And we would have to say he died on a what? Oh, he was hung? Well, hold on a second. How could he be cursed of God and anointed or blessed of God at the same time? How could he receive God's beruchah? How could he receive his blessing? This is what they wanted. They wanted him what? Cursed. They wanted him Cursed. But I'm here to tell you that the cross didn't complete their plans. The cross completed God's plan. Because God planned this all along. Jesus predicted it back in chapter three. You only go three chapters before you're told that God so loves the world that he will give his son. And how will he give his son? He'll have him hung. He'll have him lifted up just like the serpent in the wilderness. See, it's God's plan, not Rome's plan, not the Jewish leader's plan. It's God's plan. See, the serpent in the wilderness freed Israel from death. They would certainly die from these snakes. I don't know what they were, but they would certainly die. Snakes were biting them, and they were dying from it. God's, God commands Moses to make a snake out of brass and hang it. What happens to something that's hung? It's what? Cursed, right? What happens to something that gets hung? A curse. So it gets cursed. All they had to do was look at it because it is now cursed hanging from a pole. And all they had to do was look and be saved from death, certain death. It frees Israel from certain death with only one condition. And that one condition has to be what? Faith. At least, right? At least enough faith to do what? To work through the absurdity of it. To work through the foolishness of it. Okay? To get through the skepticism. All you needed was enough faith to listen to the Father. Moses said, God says this. Look at it and you will what? Don't look at it, and you're certainly going to die. You just had to have just that much faith to get past the absurd notion that this would do anything. To get past the stumbling block of the absurdity. This makes absolutely no sense. That's all you needed. A lot in common, the serpent in the wilderness and the cross. 
It isn't by accident that Jesus used this particular story in order for us to begin to understand what he's about to do from chapter three all the way to chapter 19 in, in the Gospel of John. But they both have a lot in common, the brazen serpent. It's named in Hebrew, Nehushtan. Nehushtan and the cross have a lot in common. They're both to be called upon as objects of faith, are they not? Both are. Both free Israel from certain death, frees all from certain death, with only one condition, being faith. To look at Jesus on the cross, all you need to do is what? Is believe. Is believe that this was God's plan. Is to believe that he is doing something for us. The salvation that they both provided had to be experienced by faith. It's not faith that keeps you from death. It's faith that allows you to experience the salvation from death. It's a channel, it's a pipe, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a clearing of a way, if you will. The story of Nehushtan is interesting though, is that it had to be destroyed eventually because it became an idol. It became an idol to Israel. As a matter of fact, it was around long enough. I didn't, I forgot I was gonna, after prayer meeting, I was gonna add up the number of years. But sometime between Numbers 21 and the reign of Hezekiah, this thing is still around. I'm not sure if it's the original one. I bet that it is. It's made of brass. It lasts a long time. I bet that it is. And before Hezekiah's day, it is actually sitting in the courtyard next to the altar. And they were burning incense to it. It had to be destroyed because it became an idol. They believed that the power was in the what? Was in the serpent. Why burn incense to a brass serpent? Because so many years ago, our fathers looked at it and was what? Was saved. So obviously, it's got some power. Nehushtan has some power. Moses gave it some power that day. But the power isn't the serpent, is it? The power was the curse. That's the power. The power was the curse. And who pronounces the curse? God was the power. So he finally saw fit to order Hezekiah to destroy the thing. They're worshiping the wrong thing. They are idolizing the wrong thing. They're idolizing the instrument, if you will, the illustration. We can make some, some of the same claim of the cross, can't we? Has Christians, have Christians over the century idolized the cross? Sure. And I know we're all nodding our heads because we're thinking other Christians have, but hang on in this series, okay? Just hang on. We're gonna talk about our idolization of the cross also. But yeah, we have, haven't we? When I say we, I say us, the history of Christianity. We've idolized the cross. We made it into something, haven't we? But I want you to remember for today, if there's one thing in this very first sermon of this series, this very first study, I want you to remember one thing, that just as the serpent in the wilderness, the cross has no power. 
We talk about it all the time. There are songs written about it. There are lyrics in some of our hymnals. I looked at all the hymns in our hymnal that mention the cross, and there's at least one line in there where it could be inferred that we're supposed to be worshiping the cross. The old rugged cross is something to be what? To be cherished. Really? Now, I don't think that's what the hymn writer means. But if you just read the lyrics, if you just look at it, it almost sounds like we're supposed to cherish the what? The cross. Today, the hymn we sung today. I don't think Fanny Crosby is, is, is quite what it sounds, but if you, if you take it just for what it's worth, we find power and light and warmth and everything where? Near the what? No, I've been around crosses. They're cold and they're rugged. We had one in my last church that we, that we used for props and, and, and everything else, and yeah, it was on our platform. It was huge, it was big. It weighed about 200 pounds. And every time that I moved that thing, I'd get splinters. See what I'm saying? We have to be careful about the way we talk about it, don't we? Otherwise, we've done the same thing with the cross that Israel did with Nehushtan. We give it a power it does not have. The power of the cross is what happened on it. The power of the cross is the curse. The curse of what? Curse of death. So we'll talk more about the idolatry of the cross. And it's a whole lot more than just uh, crucifixes or crosses on platforms or refrigerator magnets or jewelry or even logos. Yeah, I know, I understand. Our logo that I love dearly has what in the middle? It has a cross in the middle. We'll be talking a lot about that. But the power, the power and where it lies and where it comes from. The cross has no inherent power in and of itself. The cross had been used for, for generations as an abject tool of, ab as a tool of abject humiliation. As a demonstration of absolute earthly power over anybody who would dare to challenge him. You challenge the emperor, this is what happens to you. The cross was used by an earthly power to keep people in line, to force people very effective on this planet, in this kingdom. Very, very effective. But the power, the curse, that's the power of the cross. That's where it comes from. It's not the cross, it's what happened on it. You with me? Because even if you add, if you remember what Jesus said, that the next verse after he pr predicted, just as Moses has lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may what? May have eternal life. It's an instrument, but it has no power in and of itself. The power is him. The power is the curse that he experienced for us. See, that brass serpent was hung up on a pole and cursed. God cursed it for the sake of who? For everybody that the snakes had bit. Jesus experiences our curse for us. He's hung, 
and cursed. He takes our sin to the cross. This is why that whoever would believe, whoever would just look at him and believe, we can have what? We can have eternal life. See, the curse that he experienced was ultimately being forsaken by God. He's tasting something that all of us deserve. Is there anybody here that deserves life? No. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone who has ever been born has sinned. Amen? It's not a strange thing to amen that. If you don't amen that, you can't amen, amen what comes next, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All right. It's not the physical death, by the way, that he will die, as most of us will, okay? The cross may provide the first death, Jesus' first death, the, the death that he experiences in this body. The thing about the power of the cross, though, the power of the curse, is that the only physical complaint, Jesus is not complaining about what he's going through physically. This is why I begin to eliminate in, in, in teaching. In, in prayer meeting, we talked about it just a little bit, but I used to go into great detail as to what's happening to his body right now. And it would, it, it, it would make you turn away. I used to go into great detail. But I thought about this. I thought about all the words and everything that he quote unquote complained about hanging on the cross. He doesn't say one thing about what's happening to his body. The only complaint you'll ever receive about what's going on with him is towards the end he says two words, I'm thirsty. That's it. They give him vinegar, a pain reliever by the way. One gospel says he drank it, another gospel says he refused it. Either way, he died with a swollen tongue and vinegar in his beard. See, but the curse was something else. We see it in his words. The words aren't about what's happening to, the, to his body. The words are about what's happening to his heart. In the book of Matthew, we hear this. It says about three o'clock, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you what? Why have you forsaken me? It's not the first death. It's not the instrument of, of uh, torture that is bringing about his torture. It is the separation from God that the curse brings. We're cursed because we're separated from who? We've been separated from him ever since we sinned. Hiding in the bushes. Refusing to come out. Something that you and I can do every day without even thinking about it, I'm not gonna speak for you. You're a church, you're a room full of believers. You probably don't have this experience. It's only me, the sinner. I'm, yeah. But I can wake up in the morning and I can separate from God like that. You do the same thing? I've, I've shared with it before, all it would take would be a traffic jam when I'm late, right? That's all it would take. That's all it would take. Jesus even begins to ponder separating from the Father and he becomes so stressed that his blood vessels rupture into his sweat glands and blood pours out of his pores. That's what's killing him, the separation from his father. 
It's the curse. It's the curse that's the power. That's what he's experiencing for us. The first death is, wasn't to be an experience because most of us are going to experience the first death. By the way, first death, if we believe, it's a nap. <laughs> it's a nap we get to wake up from. But it's this one. It's not a cry of distress, but it's a cry that we're supposed to hear. There's something in that cry that it, he is truly living our curse. This isn't about him. It's about us. It's about everyone that he is doing it for, which is everyone. This message, what he's about to do. In the Gospel of John, there were always three main groups of people that were witnessing uh, Jesus' ministry and his message. There were more, but you could classify them pretty much into three main groups. The church of the day, the leaders, the religious leaders, if you will, right? Chief priests, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees. It's a long list in this one particular group. They're following him. They're listening very closely. And in, and, and in most cases, they're also arguing with him, aren't they? They're debating him. The other group are the disciples themselves. And the disciples probably belong more in the third group than in the first group because the third group then is everyone else. And John only refers to them as the crowd. It's that whole group of people that don't belong in either of the other groups. This is the irreligious. This is the sinners. This is the poor. This is the sick. The people that don't belong where? That don't belong in the temple. That don't belong in the church. For some reason, they're following him around. There's something about him that attracts them. And by the way, they've been attracted by no other rabbi, but there's something about this rabbi. It's always those three people listening. And as I said, the dynamic is usually always the same, isn't it? Jesus preaches, causes some controversy with the church. The church begins to argue. They begin to argue with him as how he cannot be who he claims to be. Jesus works with them, continues to bring them along. But we forget there are two other groups that are listening, aren't they? And it's all the way up into chapter 8 before you see these words right here. In 8.28, as he begins this debate, and he's debating with the church, it says, he tells them, he says this, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you'll realize I am he, and that I do nothing on my own, but I speak these things as the Father instructed me. Something's going to happen, he says. When you lift up the Son of Man, that's when you realize that he is the son of man. It hit me as studying this, worshiping, as studying this. I'm almost tempted, Grady, to use that as our scripture reading for every sermon. Because remember what? Remember, there's something in that verse that caught my attention. And all I did was use it as scripture reading back in when, he, when we studied John 19. But there's something about that as to why the cross is a stumbling block to believers. The verse before our scripture reading, Paul actually says that only believers can believe in the cross. Nobody gets the message until after the cross. I'll have to talk about that just a little bit. 
By the way, I'll have to talk about that as to why it's foolishness to non-believers. Why? Because only believers can get it. We'll talk about how is it then that a believer can help a non-believer make it unfoolish, if you will. The lifting up, the cross, that's related to the glorification of God through this. For God so loved the world. When will the world know that God is in love with them? When he lifts up his son. The cross does more to validate Jesus' true character than all other evidence regarding his divine character. The cross is it. When we ponder what he did for us, then we know that he is our God. That kind of knowledge, that doesn't come until after we've walked with him for a while. Amen? I have to admit that as an adult convert, before I joined this church and began to walk with you, before I began to hear uh, other people talk about experiencing this cross, up until that point, as, 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 a, as a human being, if you will, well into my 20s, I never understood the cross. It was foolishness. It made no sense. Absolutely no sense. See, but when we look back on there, what, this is what we forget. We look back on, on who seemed to be Jesus' enemies, those who disliked him, those who would not believe, those who would not listen to him. We forget that the cross hasn't happened yet. We're looking at it back through the eyes of the cross. We're looking at it through history, and we look at the people that witness what they witness about Jesus, listen and hear what he hears, and we scoff at them saying, you're so stupid, how could you not get it? It's because they haven't seen it yet. It hasn't happened yet. Jesus says right here, doesn't he? When the Son of Man is lifted up, then you'll begin to what? Because that's actually what it says. As he was saying these things, many believed. The crowd is beginning to believe. All the way up until John 8, and the, uh, what was it, Grady, probably 10 encounters between Jesus and the crowd. The crowd finally is beginning to get it. All he had to do was mention the cross once. And people are beginning to what? They're beginning to believe. The creation, the fall, the recreation. His last words on the cross, according to John, is it is finished. Nothing more to reveal. Don't have any other information for you. This is the information that you have and that you need in order to have just a little bit of faith. Maybe look at me and be saved. And then we'll keep walking together. And Jesus then will continue to reveal himself to us every day the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this verse is what got me started. But we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, a foolishness to Gentiles. Real quick, and we'll explore both of these themes. Gentiles don't believe it because it is foolishness. You don't win in this kingdom by dying. The ones who die have what? They lost, right? You die, you lose. You don't win by dying. You win by killing and making sure all pay their debts, pay the price, right? 
I always quote General Patton when I talk about this. General Patton said, you don't win a war by dying for your country. You win a war by making someone else die for their country. And it's not a funny line. It's true in this kingdom. The cross is a stumbling block to believers because they don't know that God says, even though he's paid it all, there still has to be something more. There's an absurdity to that. We can sing about it. We can worship him for paying it all. But did he really? And end up having to add to that. End up having to, um, uh, to, to reconsider the words, to begin to parse them out. It can't be just that. Look and be saved. It can't be just that. So then I begin to weave my own works in according to the law, the way Paul puts it to the Galatians and the Ephesians. I need to give God a reason to save me. Because good people get saved. If you think about it, neither the church of the day, neither the believers, nor the non-believers get it, do they? Because they don't understand the power. They misunderstand where the power comes from. Neither group understands the power. When God came to Adam and Eve to walk and talk with them after they'd fallen, they simply couldn't believe that he still loved them. They insisted on staying in the bush. Hold on there, Lord. Stay out there until we can get good. And we've locked him out ever since. Because when is it we're going to become perfect enough to come out to the Father? So the church then makes the cross an idol. If I can't understand the power of it, I'll at least try to get a hold of it and tame it, right? Get control over it. Carry it around. Wear it. Put it on signs, flags. Make jewelry out of it. We need this magical authority over everybody else. It's what the church begins to attempt, what the church begins to do. Why? Because it's believers that make the cross a stumbling block. A power that becomes mine, one that I can carry in my pocket. Take it out when I want it. The thing is though, is that the history of the church, as Sam reminded us today, from Ephesus to Laodicea, the only reason that we know that entire history is number one, it's already been lived, but number two, it was given to John. So guess what? When he went to the cross, he knew the church was gonna do this. He knew the church was going to do what they did. He knew that we were all idolaters and sinners, and he decided to have his body broken for us anyway. So we can rejoice because we proclaim Christ crucified. We still may fall. We still may stumble over it. But let's make sure we stumble over that. That we stumble over the stumbling block we're supposed to stumble over. And that is the power of the cross. Understanding the power. It wasn't the cross. It wasn't the brass and the serpent. It was him. It's always been him. Him.
our shame, our guilt, his righteousness, him. The power is the curse that he experienced for us. The power is the blessing that he pronounced on us, all because of that instrument. No power in and of itself. To understand just a little bit, I'll finish up right here. Before I start, I want to tell you this. Psalm 31, verses 1 through 5, if you look at Psalm 31, verses 1 through 5, there is evidence that by Jesus' day, those five verses were used as what we would uh, consider a little child's prayer. The prayer that you pray with the child before you put them to bed. What's the Christian little child's prayer? Now I lay me down to sleep, right? Anybody here ever teach their kids that? Yeah. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray to the Lord my soul to what? If I die before I wake, that's, that's a good thing to do. Let's terrorize a child with their death every night before we put them to bed. So that's a very Victorian way of looking at it, right? Very Victorian way of looking at it. But it does put the power in the right place, doesn't it? I pray to God, my soul to what? Soul to keep. All right. I like, I like the Jewish children's prayer a little better. I like it just a little better. And it's interesting. I, well, I'll talk a little bit about the context of it. But it's interesting. It begins this way. It says, in you, O Lord, it's a Psalm of David. And if you look at the title of it, Psalm of David, and it's a prayer, actually him praying to be protected from his enemies. After verse five, it, it, it's not a kid anymore. After verse five, you can't, you can't use it as a children's prayer anymore because he starts talking about what he would like his enemies to have done to them, okay? And so it isn't, it isn't a prayer. So in context, this probably never ever should have been a little child's prayer. But I want, to th I want you to think about it, that in the centuries from David to Jesus, you know, in those centuries, around uh, 8, 9, you know, uh, uh, 700 or so B.C., you know, all the way up, you got to think about that ancient world. you got to think about how violent that really was. And every time that you went to bed, there probably was no guarantee you were going to see tomorrow. You know, you're living in a time where the infant mortality rate is 75%. So they begin to hold on to these words. If David can use it to, to ask for refuge, then why can I ask it to ask for refuge to make sure that, that my child wakes up again the next day? In you, O Lord, I seek refuge. Don't let me ever be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline, I'm sorry, incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. You are, oops, you are indeed my rock, my fortress. For your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Take me out of the net that is hidden for me. For you are my refuge. And then verse five. Into your hand I commit my spirit. For you have redeemed me, O faithful God. Where would you hear those words again? See, if that's a childhood's prayer, and maybe, just maybe, you use only that last verse. That last verse, a great prayer to put your kids to bed with. Nellie and I did it with our youngest son. You can hear Andrew's voice to this day saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, for you have saved me, for you have redeemed me. 
You can say that they sound familiar and that we've heard them before, but we haven't quite heard all of them, have we? See, in Luke, his take on Jesus' last words on the cross or Jesus crying out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he what? He breathed his last. According to Luke, the last words that he breathed is his childhood prayer. What he learned as a little boy. What he learned as a little son of man. Into your hands I commit my spirit. See, after taking care of his mother, after making sure that John is now her son, quote unquote, and she is now his mother, to be responsible, to be her kindred redeemer. After doing that, after doing that, taking care of them, after forgiving the thief, after forgiving those who have done what they're doing to him, after forgiving the mockers and the executioners, after doing all those things with his breath, these are the last words that he says, the words that she and Joseph taught him as a baby. Why? Because he's proclaiming saving grace with his final words. See, everyone around knows this prayer. Everyone that is standing around knows this prayer. If indeed it was their childhood prayer, they've heard these words before, have they not? They have it memorized. So when Jesus says this, into your hands I commit my spirit, everyone then is waiting for something. They're waiting for the next words, which he doesn't say. You have what? You have redeemed me. Jesus says, into thy hands I commit your spirit, and he dies with those words, knowing that anybody who had ever heard that prayer before is going to say it in their head, for you have redeemed me. And as they say it in their head, they're looking at the power that will redeem them. So it isn't even really the power of his words. That's the power of the cross. He can save even in the absence of his words. They'll say it themselves. They'll finish it themselves. And they may not get it right there. You with me? It might be one of those things that they go home and they talk about what happened over their Passover dinner and they go to bed and for some reason they won't be able to sleep. And then maybe 40 days later or so, they hear Peter preach and all of a sudden now they know the words. See, the power isn't to talk about his power as being power as the son of God. His power as the son of man. His power was to revert to his childhood prayer, Mary's baby boy. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. There's no power in the cross. The power is what he did on it for us. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He'll add in 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might in him become the righteousness of God. 
For the cross, it's an absence of power. There's no power in the cross. The power is him. It always has been. Into thy hands I commit my spirit, for you have saved me, O righteous Father. Amen? So welcome to our study, the foolish stumbling block of the cross. Thanks for hanging in there. Happy Sabbath, everybody. Mm -hmm.